Welcome back to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. There's almost nothing that we do today that might have been done the same way 10 years ago. The way you book travel, get a car and driver, find places to stay, take photographs, date, communicate with your friends, or consume the news. Creative destruction is everywhere. However, there are a few places where such change has been very slow to come, particularly with respect to education, government, and health care. In the world of health care, that's all beginning to change. The sheer force of science and discovery has pushed the otherwise leaden walls of the staid medical profession to change rapidly. And like every other change, it's no longer one size fits all. The long tail of medicine is about the customization of treatment, and along with it, a required need for individual empowerment. Some might call it squeaky wheel medicine. Others might call it the future. And one of those is my guest, Dr. David Agus. David Agus is a professor of medicine and engineering at the University of Southern California. He heads USC's Westside Cancer Center and the Center for Applied Molecular Medicine. He's also a CBS News medical contributor. Dr. Agus chairs the Global Agenda Council on Genetics for the World Economic Forum, speaks regularly at TEDMED and the Aspen Ideas Festival, and he's the author of the bestseller, The End of Illness. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. David Agus back to the program to talk about his newest work, The Lucky Years, How to Thrive in the Brave New World of Health. Dr. Agus, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's my pleasure. It's great to have you here. Have we prepared the public enough as the medical profession, the media, have we all prepared the public enough for the empowerment that this new world of medicine is going to require? You know, unfortunately, I just don't think so. Um, we all think about health when we get sick or a relative gets sick. We don't think about health when we're in our 20s, our 30s and 40s, and we're healthy and doing well. And that has to change. You know, to get prepared to benefit from all these new dramatic things happening in what I call the lucky years, you have to be prepared. And talk about the ways in which you have to be prepared. Is it about knowledge? Is it about being more proactive in looking at the alternatives for treatment? What are the areas that that preparation really has to reflect? Well, I think it's all of the above. But, I mean, put it as simple this way. When you go to your doctor at 2 o'clock and he or she check your blood pressure, that really doesn't make sense. Who checks in the morning when you get up and night when you go to bed? When you're upset after a phone call, there's an old adage, with enough data, error goes away. And so today, the doctor's office are a place where they collect data. They check your blood pressure, your pulse, your weight. They draw blood. And a few days later, they call you with the results. The new world of medicine is going to be you check all your data at home, bring that with you. You'll probably get your labs done you know, by pricking your finger before you go in so you can actually sit with your doctor and spend 10, 15 minutes with him or her actually discussing what's going on and making a game plan together for change. How is this going to affect older Americans, certainly for a younger generation and for those even, for, for baby boomers who are more comfortable with technology, who are using this technology in their daily lives, it's certainly something that they're going to be more comfortable with. For older Americans, it seems more problematic. You know, it's funny. If you look back, you know, not just five, seven years ago, it was said that it was a divide in computer use and the internet use and the elderly weren't using it. Well, if you look at the data now, they're one of the most dominant users on it. And so I, I believe in our elderly because I am becoming one of them. <laughs> and I certainly believe that all of us, if we understand why and we're taught how, we're going to do it. 
And so this really is an era of self-empowerment. You know, there was a notion that disease just happened, and we can throw that out the window. We have to be prepared. We have to practice prevention. We have to know ourselves, know our data, and therefore we can get the right things to happen to actually get the best outcome. And where is this knowledge going to come from? How are people going to get this information? Well, that's a key question. You know, there's a lot of noise out there, right? You can find anything on the Internet. And on the Internet, everything looks the same. And so what we need to start to use is to use trusted sources. You know, I, you, as you alluded to, I do the morning show at CBS a couple days a week. And why? Because it's my obligation to educate. It's my obligation to get information out there and to be sort of a filter to take away some of the noise. And so the great newspapers, the great magazines, they're the ones who have filters. They choose and they look through and say, this study doesn't make sense. We're not going to report it. Or this is a New England Journal of Medicine and a placebo-controlled randomized trial. makes all the sense in the world to talk about. And I think as an individual, it's hard. But I think if we start to use trusted sources, we can start to get there and get away from some of this noise. There's an old adage, in order to get normative behavior change, you need leadership. And it's an amazing thing to me that about 30% of the U.S. economy is food and health, and yet there's very little leadership. When the greatest leader in healthcare over the last decade is the former mayor of New York City, you know there's something wrong with our field. And part of it, though, is about education and discernment that, that really is at the heart of what you're talking about. And it's context. You know, if there's a study done and it was done in a, in a very different situation than you are, a different type of person, it's probably not related to you. And so this is a very difficult field because things aren't absolute, they're contextual. And so if a study was done in, you know, women in Norway, it may not be applicable if you're an African-American living in Tennessee. I think that makes it very hard. What does it say about the role of doctors in this new equation and their relationship to their patients? Well, I think, you know, you need to have a trusting relationship with your doctor. They need to be on top of things. And, you know, again, I think it's going to change the playing field dramatically because they're not going to be data collectors anymore. They're going to be data interpreters. And if you go to your doctor with all your data and he or she says, I don't care about that, then you need a different doctor. But, you know, there's remarkable data, for example, that movement over time equals health. And then if you walk, for example, an hour extra a week, you actually can live longer. Well, how many times does your doctor ask you, what percentage of the day do you move? Do you move every hour? That's a key component to health, both in terms of reducing risk of heart disease and cancer. It needs to be part of the medical record. What about the devices that we have today, the ability to collect our own personal data with, with all of these wearables and all the things that are available today? Well, yeah, that's what's going to integrate into electronic medical records. You know, President Obama in his first term issued a dictum that every doctor in the country needs to be on electronic medical records. So all of a sudden, our healthcare data was liberated, and we had a chance as researchers to start to use it. An amazing study came out earlier this year, for example, that if you had ovarian cancer and happened to be on a very inexpensive blood pressure medicine called a beta blocker, you lived over a year longer. And that's what we call a big data finding. You know, when Google, you search, the search today is better than the search yesterday. They look at where people search, and they actually make your search better. In my field, we don't change. I'm the same as I was a decade ago. And so the power of this big data era is that we're all going to get better at what we're doing. We're going to make observations and discoveries like that blood pressure medicine and ovarian cancer that can transform people's lives. How are we doing in terms of doctors changing? You know, we've been talking about the public needing to change. What about doctors in the medical profession changing to adapt to these things that we've been talking about? 
I think medicine, like most fields, will change from the bottom up, not the top down. So I think when patients go in and say, hey, I'm using this device integrated into my healthcare, and they say that over and over again, you're going to start to see doctors change. You know, we are a stubborn, pig-headed profession, and I'm just like everybody else in that regard. And 50% adoption of physicians for a new technology takes, on average, 12 to 14 years. So we're way too slow. In today's era of the lucky years, where literally there's a discovery happening every week or so, we have to change. We have to make that, or we as a profession and individuals aren't going to succeed. To what extent should this be going on, or is it going on, in medical schools today? Medical schools are around tests. You have to pass the boards. You have to pass this test. It's not about learning to talk to a patient. It's not learning to think and integrate data, unfortunately. So I do think we have to dramatically change our education system. When you go to a a doctor as a patient now, you don't care if they're able to memorize things and do well on a test. You'd rather actually a doctor go to a computer and just Google something because you know you're going to get it right. Um, you want a doctor who can speak to you, who can understand your values, who can explain things to you. So I think the qualities required in a physician are changing and needs to change. And the medical education system has been slow to make that adaptation, but hopefully that will happen. As more and more information is available to patients, to consumers essentially, is there a danger of, of people getting the wrong idea about what might be wrong with them? There is this, this individual tendency to look for zebras as opposed to horses. Yeah, but I don't think you can shy away from that. You're right. Is that you know, When I was going through medical school, every month I thought I had the disease that they were talking about. <laughs> said, if you have a headache, you have a brain cancer. I thought I had everything. I think we have to get above that and move on. This really is a new era. You know, We're going to be able to reverse aging relatively soon. We're going to be able to unleash your immune system to attack cancer. And their drugs are proved to do that now. We can sequence the DNA of a disease and actually target the on switches. This is a new era of what we're doing. And technology is a major part of that. I don't think we should shy away from it or be afraid of it. We have to embrace it and use it for good. What we don't seem to have, though, is the medical infrastructure that really addresses the whole panoply of things that we've been talking about. No question about it. You know, again, the EMRs that I use, I mean, if you tried to use one, it's like using Windows 95 today, you would be hitting your head against the floor. Is there a pain in the butt to use? They're not easy. These new technologies, I don't know how to integrate it into a chart or into patient management all the time. And I'm pretty good at it, and I still have lots of difficulties. And so you're right, is that there needs to be a radical change to the system. Doctors now are incentivized to treat. They're not incentivized to prevent. You know, a surgeon gets paid if they do an operation. They get paid nothing if they prevent something. And so we need to change. We need to align the goals of the individual and of the physician and of the system. So we all want the same thing with these long-term good outcomes and preventing disease. What is a medical, I mean, as you think about this, and obviously you've thought about it a lot, you've talked about it, you've written about it in the lucky years, what does the medical office of 10 years from now look like, and how is it different from today? You know, in the future, I think it's going to be a desk and a chair, um, because I think all of the data will be collected before you get there. And the role of the medical office really is, is to integrate that data and talk about it. And so I could see your doctor, you know, taking your data and putting it into a PowerPoint equivalent and putting it up in a screen to explain things about you. 
And so now, you know, genetics are the, the first thing we can do well, right? It's easy to do, it's cheap, and so everybody's starting to do it. Well, the next will be looking at the proteins in your blood. The next will be looking at the bacteria in your GI tract, and all of those will be integrated. You know, you have tenfold more bacteria in your body than you do human cells in the body. And they control your metabolism. An amazing experiment was done where they gave 20-year-olds diet sodas or the, you know, artificial sweeteners, right? Because they were the greatest food. They hate your sweet tooth and they weren't absorbed so they no calories. So they give them to that for two weeks and they all have markers of prediabetes. They then gave them antibiotics followed by the artificial sweeteners, no diabetes. So the artificial sweeteners changed the bacteria in the, eye tract, in the GI tract and pushed the system to diabetes. A staggering observation that there's a lot of angles to all of us and a lot of parts to our system. And integrating them is going to be the key, especially going forward. One of the things, though, that, that, that is the overlay to this, and you've, you've mentioned it several times, is how fast things are changing, how rapidly the, the fundamental knowledge base is changing. Uh, yeah, you know, Andy Grove, who was one of my mentors, he was the former chairman of a company called Intel, had a thing called the inflection point, and it's the curve of progress versus time. An inflection point is when that changes, and when it goes up and literally straight up, you can either adapt and succeed or not adapt and fail, and that's happening in our space. All of these remarkable technologies are coming to bear almost at once, and there's an information explosion whether it be big data, whether it be technologies, whether it be sequencing DNA, all of those things are happening. We're lab on a chip right now, and we all have to adapt to benefit them. And so it's exciting and it's encouraging. You know, I'm a cancer doc, so a couple times a week I look someone in the eye and say, I have no more drugs to treat your cancer. And that's the, my motivation for trying to push for change because I don't want to do that anymore. Is this change that is happening on a global basis, is it happening throughout this country, or is it happening only at the margins at this point? You know, what's exciting to me is that most of the technology and discoveries described in the lucky years are available to all, regardless of income, regardless of race, regardless of where in the world you live or, or, or reside. You know, a wild study came out in Europe where they looked at concentric circles around airports. So the closer in you were to the airport, the quicker the neurocognitive decline was, the brain decline was, as you got older. So our brain needs quiet time, for example. That big data study showed us. And without that quiet time, it starts to have problems later in life. So, you know, listen, I have a 150-pound dog that snores. I wear <laughs> earplugs every night, and I get my quiet time. So that simple observation, that big data observation, for a relatively low cost, those little foam earplugs can transform a patient's life in their elder years. Is there a danger of over-expectation, that, that, that patients come in thinking that with all of this, this new technology, new medicine, genetics, all the things we've been touching on, that in fact everything has a solution or a cure? It's a, you hit a major, major issue. And I, you know, it's what you know, keeps me up at night and makes me feel guilty all the time. I talk about advances. And yet I still have patients dying on a regular basis. And what do I say to them? And I think this is the beginning, the hopefully the beginning of a change, but we're certainly not there yet. Patients are still dying of these horrible diseases at a relatively fast pace. And we're better than we were, but I really believe with the advent of these lucky years, we can start to make an impact and that will change, but we're not there yet. What do we make of some of these statistics that we see that lifespan, life expectancy is not increasing at the, at the pace that we would expect it to, given all of this? I think it's poppycock. I mean, I, I really do. I think if you look at that, we are living longer every year than when we have the previous year. 
Um, there will be a limit. We're not going to live forever. But every generation is living longer than its previous. And people out there saying, well, this is going to be the first generation that does it because of X, Y, Z. Well, there's really no data yet to that effect. We're living longer and we're living better. And technology and understanding are a big part of it, as well as behavior and prevention. Right, is that we have a right in our country of doing whatever we want. We can be sedentary all day, we can smoke tobacco, we can do any behavior we want. But the key question going forward is, does society have the obligation to pay for the healthcare ramifications of our behavior? And that is one of the things that we really haven't touched on, is the increasing cost of all of this and how it's going to impact the ability to deliver this future that we've been discussing. You know, I, what's exciting to me is that most of the things described in the lucky year have very little cost. That being said, drug pricing now and drug costs now are starting to escalate at an alarming rate. We can cure hepatitis C, yet it costs $1,000 a pill for a multiple month supply. And so, you know, when companies make a discovery and they have a new drug and they have a monopoly basically, you hate for them to practice predatory practice and, you know, price a drug inappropriately. So I think we need to start to have value based pricing going forward. We need to incentivize for discoveries, but at the same time, they can't take advantage of an at-need population, if you will, and price things too high. And and what pushback is there to that? Where is that pushback going to come from? Well, I mean, the, the, the pushback is, is that if you, you know, lower cost of drugs, nobody's going to spend the money to innovate. Um, you know, and at the same time, is that do you really want government involved in pricing drugs, you know, and pricing a product for the consumer? Let the market decide, et cetera. Well, unfortunately, because of the patent system, it's not really a free market. And when you have that monopoly, I do think that we need to put in controls on the pricing because a number of companies have taken advantage of patients. Um, we've all seen the case of you know somebody who took a, a drug off patent for a disease that happened in infants and in people with end-stage age and took it from dollars a pill to thousands of dollars a pill. Well, that's inappropriate and that's taking advantage, and we have to stop that. Are we in danger in all of this of a kind of two-tier medical system, those that, that can stay on top of all this technology and all this change, that can afford all of the things we've been talking about, and those that can't? I think, you know, that most of the technologies that we're talking about are relatively inexpensive. So I really believe that it, this is going to be a, an equalization, a democratization of health is that I think by switching it from the doctor being in the leverage position with the insurance company to the individual, it really does democratize it. It gives all of us the ability. Anybody can go out there and spend $40 and get a good blood pressure cuff and take their own data and go in with three months of data. Anybody can you know, follow how much they move during the day. Anybody can start to look at their environment and know themselves. You know, in the book, we have a two-week challenge to start to look at aspects of yourself. And I believe in that. It's that start to know yourself. Knowing yourself is the best way to start to make a change in health. Why has that been traditionally so difficult? It's very hard if I tell a 20-year-old, make a behavior change today, and it's going to help you 30 years from now. <laughs> Everybody thinks about today and not tomorrow. And so I think getting into that long-range time-scale mindset has been difficult historically. If you eat better, you're not going to feel better today. It's going to help you 20 years from now, heart disease, cancer, etc. So what's the metric? I don't have anything I can measure. I'm taking it almost on blind faith that a change today will help later. You know, there's a pill a day that if you take it, reduces not the incidence, but the death rate of cancer by over 30%, heart disease by 20%, and stroke by 17%, and it's called a baby aspirin. 
It's over 2,400 years old. But getting someone to practice prevention and take that pill, for example, that's going to help them decades from now is very hard historically. Finally, talk a little bit about getting people to really pay attention to the preventive side of all of this. You know, prevent, it's a lot easier to prevent a disease than to treat a disease. And that's true whether it be cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, or any of the others. And so we really need to focus that on that. But taking somebody who is well and telling them to make an intervention, they roll their eyes at you. Taking someone who is sick and ill and telling them to do something, they all do it. So we really need to focus on that prevention. And at the same time, you know, what happens in the United States is that over the age of 65, is the government or all of us pay for your health care. Society pays for health care. So if you were prevented disease, you're going to cost society a lot less or it cost your company less. If you don't prevent a disease, you're going to cost a lot more as well as the impact on yourself and your family. And so we really have to start to play that out there and explain to people what it's about. You know, cross-generational influence matters. When a child says to the parent, listen, I want you to stop this behavior and to practice prevention because I want you to play with your grandchildren, that has impact. And so I need all of us to step up, whether it's children talking to their parents, parents' children, or, or talking to your friends, and step up and say, I care about you. I want you around to benefit in these lucky years. And the way we all have to do it is to practice this prevention. Dr. David Agus, his book is The Lucky Years, How to Thrive in the Brave New World of Health. Doctor, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. It's a privilege. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 